Welcome to the Conversations in Speech Pathology podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Steppen. Well, where are we? Uh, 2020, it's January. And uh, today's topic is going to be tethered oral tissues, or TOTS for short. I know this is a topic that first caught my eye um, in a big way uh, a couple years ago when I had published a... Um, a blog piece that was essentially an email exchange between myself and Robin Merkel Walsh. Um, and she mentioned the word tots and talked a little bit about that in the blog piece. And I knew at that point, at some point I had to follow up with this. Well, fast forward to 2019. Um, I purchased her book that she had co-written with Lori Overland on the subject of tethered tissues. Um, tore through that thing and uh, we agreed to do sort of a round two here on uh, all things TOTS as well as just general issues with oral motor. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Thank you for listening and stick around to the end for some general housekeeping. Okay, here's Robin. All right, well, welcome back on the show, first of all. Thank you. Um, I'm excited to have you back on because I, I should tell my listeners I plan on doing a lot more on not just TOTS, but oral motor in general. I, as I've come to be uh, more knowledgeable, a lot of issues. I know TOTS has sort of hit my radar. Actually, when I first, when we first had that, um, I think it was right before we had our, our dialogue that was published uh, on my blog section of my website. Yeah. And I think that, it, it, I'm not sure, but it, right around then it was one of the first times I had seen the word TOTS. From there, I think that the term popularity and uh, it just sort of exploded from there. And obviously, you know, Talk Tools has sponsored, you know, has had you go out on the road. You've done some webinars. You've done uh, talks across the country. You published a book with uh, co-authored with Lori Overland. Yeah. Um, and so it, it's be, and I've seen it now that I'm on the Facebook group uh, was it oral myofunctional disorders. I know it's a subject that comes up a lot. So I yeah. guess where I would like to start with is when did TOTS first appear on your radar? Well, back in the late 90s, when I first started um, training with Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson and Lori Overland and Talk Tools, which was then Innovative Therapist International, was the original title of the company. Um, and I started doing some myofunctional training with Sharp Beauchart and the International Association of Oral Facial Myology. I learned about assessing tongue tie. Um, there wasn't really much talk about um, lip ties or buckle ties, which are um, in the cheek. There's actually seven oral frena. And when I started writing my oral facial myofunctional course based off of my SMILE program, which is um, a program I developed while working with a neurotypical population in the public school setting, um, I started noticing that a lot of my students with lisps and distortions or fricatives also had a tongue thrust. So that's how I came to work for Talk Tools because I approached Sarah and said, listen, I'm developing this myofunctional program based on a lot of your hierarchies and I'd like to talk to you about them. 
And one of the things that I mentioned to Sarah is a big thing that you need to check for in this population is a tongue tie. And this is what I learned through the IAOM, et cetera. So I've really been talking about tongue tie, not necessarily calling it tots, but I've been talking about tongue tie in my courses and in my smile program since 1999. Mm. And then what started happening as more and more evidence-based and the Oral Motor Institute and the IAOM started doing a lot of advocacy efforts um, for evidence-based practice. And then the Academy um, of Myofunctional Therapy was founded um, by Mark and Joy Moeller. Um, Mark had done a lot of um, investigation or research per se in Brazil. And um, Mark approached me at an ASHA convention and started um, talking to me about how the Brazilians had a tongue tie inspection law because it was such a high incidence and prevalence in Brazil. And they were starting to talk about, could it be related to sleep disordered breathing? Could it be associated with um, sudden infant death syndrome? And what was really ironic about this is Lori and I had been in the midst of conversations about, um, you know, we were seeing um, an increase in tongue tie and we didn't know why. Um, and I had been long working with ENT, Dr. Anthony Yan, who was at that time both in New Jersey and New York. He's just in New York now. And we had written an article for the ASHA leader called Teaming Up to Correct Tongue Tie. Um, and this was, I think, around 2013, 14, where we really started seeing that there were a lot of submucosal fibers involved in this. And Dr. Yan always called this tethering of oral tissue, um, tethered frenulum, tethered tissue. Um, and I started hearing the term TOTS um, more on the um, oral facial myofunctional circuit. And I had always read um, this term being used by Dr. Lawrence Cotlow, who is a well-known phrenectomy specialist out of Albany, New York. And he wrote a text called the SOS for TOTS. And investigating that, I had found out um, that Dr. Kevin Boyd had somewhat coined this term back at a convention. Um, and then after further investigation, I actually learned that Kim Kimberly Bankert, who is an RDH and an instructor um, and also a certified oral facial myologist, has actually been using this term for a long, long time. So I think quite a few professionals were using it, but it just wasn't in the mainstream. And mm -hmm. now that more and more people are interested in this and teaching about it, there's a lot of advocacy efforts. We now use the term TOTS more freely because it's more inclusive of restrictions of the buccal, labial, and um, lingual frena. So it, it's um, a, a clearer description 
than just saying tongue tie because a lot of patients don't just have lingual restriction, they have other restrictions. Right. Now, now you had mentioned, let's just back up a second. You mentioned that in Brazil that they have a law in the books that yes. uh, mandates that all newborns are going to be screened for this. Is it something that with a good oral neck exam within the first days of birth that you can, that a well-trained person can identify pretty easily? Or? Yes. Okay. Yes. And um, recently, Jeff, um, there's the team over in Brazil, um, DeCastro, um, Rodriguez, um, Irene Marcuson, um, Dr. Cosmanos, um, Veritin Felix, um, Dr. Martinelli, um, they are the ones doing most of the research in Brazil. Um, and they have been studying the characteristics of Freena tissue. They have been studying the proper inspection to make sure that a posterior tongue tie um, is not missed. And I'm sure you're going to want to talk about that as well. Mm -hmm. um, but the, Dr. Martinelli and Marcuson, um, their maneuver to inspect for tongue tie and Dr. Bobby Gahari, who's a well-known ENT, um, who is a phrenectomy specialist, um, they suggest a maneuver to really expose the fibers and be able to do a thorough and proper um, inspection. And Lori and I talk about this in our class and Dr. Gahari actually has some directions on his website on how to do that inspection. So in Brazil, um, they are training their staff in the hospital to do this inspection. And they have actually found an alarming incidence and prevalence where the Mayo Clinic is showing it about 3%. Um, and some other reports are showing 3 to 10%. Um, the most recent studies out of Brazil are showing it at over 34% when proper inspection is performed. Whoa. Okay, so this yeah. is this is pretty big. Um, now, okay, so the question that I have next is that if you have, okay, so you're, you're mentioning, obviously, you can have lingual, uh, frenula, uh, tide, uh, buccal, and there's uh, seven points that I think you mentioned, Dr. Kotlow had mentioned. In, in all spots, in all types of uh, frenula, uh, tethered tissues, uh, upon inspection at, at birth, would you, if someone passed that threshold where something had to be done, would you do that? In, I w I'm assuming you would do it immediately if it had an immediate effect on the ability of the, of the, of the baby to breastfeed. But is there other cases for where you would say, yes, we need to do something, but we can wait? Or in all cases, would you just do a, phren a phrenectomy immediately? Well, um, this is what why Lori and I wrote our book, because... We really believe that physical inspection of the Frena alone does not warrant necessity for surgical intervention, but rather the functional assessment. Mm. And you know, Asha talks about um, in their oral facial myofunctional disorders practice portal, how speech pathologists need to be able to um, assess and recognize when there are oral restrictions, but it's not up to us to decide the surgery. But the um, 
complication with that is a lot of times the medical insurance relies on the speech pathologist to prove the functional impact to warrant the surgery. Um, so it becomes like this loophole. So what Lori and I wanted to do when we wrote our book is, you know, um, obviously breastfeeding is one way that tots can impact um, a person across the lifespan, mm -hmm. but there's also other areas of feeding, bottle feeding, cup drinking, straw drinking, um, progression to purees, progression to solids, and speech articulation issues that can have a functional impact. Now in Brazil, if a tongue tie is discovered, they must get the release before being released to the hospital. So their approach is, no, we're not going to wait because they're very concerned about the airway. Mm. Um, here, we don't have such law. Um, and this is often being missed in the hospital. And a lot of hospitals where lactation consultants in the hospital um, can notice it, um, they're not allowed to diagnose it in many hospitals. They kind of have a gag order on them, which is very interesting in itself. Um, so, you know, what Lori and I say, and I think this, um, was really prominent in the new study that just came out of Boston, um, which were there, uh, there were a lot of, um, criticisms for what they were basically saying is it's not appropriate, um, for a baby to just, you know, have a little trouble with fe feeding be diagnosed with a tongue tie and then jump right into the surgery. Um, what they tried to do is, you know, get a, a feeding team together. They had speech pathologists that were also um, certified lactation consultants and they did some evaluations and then they um, did um, interventions. And they found that not all of the babies needed surgery. Not all of them were um, properly diagnosed. And the, and the lead on this research um, was Callaway. Mm -hmm. And it was published in JAMA. And a lot of the phrenectomy providers were very upset about it because it was showing that um, only about roughly a third of these patients that were referred needed the surgery and the Huffington Post took it and they tried to say, you know, tongue tie surgeries are being overdone and it's a fad, but that's not really what the study was aiming to do. Mm -hmm. um, that's why a functional assessment is really needed. The babies who truly had a tongue tie and had feeding issues that couldn't be remediated in therapy were released. Um, and they're, they're, they actually strongly feel that they should be released. But um, many of these referrals came from lactation consultants, and we don't know where the breakdown was. Um, obviously, um, IBCLCs are the gold standard in breastfeeding, mm -hmm. um, but perhaps their training for pediatric dysphagia, it's not really in their scope of practice, so maybe they wouldn't recognize a pediatric dysphagia differentiated from a tongue tie the way a speech pathologist or even an occupational therapist who has a specialty in feeding disorders would.
Um, yeah, I, and I would think that I, I know in your book you talk about the need for a team approach, and I think yes. that I think I think it just would behoove you know uh, as far as putting a law in the books if we did so in the United States that you would want a team approach. You don't want just one discipline. I mean, even though you know it, it sounds like Tots research and the prevalence of Tots. The weirdness, it, it sounds like it's been it's come more from the world of like ENTs and dentistry than it has from, say, speech pathology. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but uh, it sounds like I mean, if you if you want to do this right, you have to have everybody yes, on board. I, I can hardly keep up with my slides um, for our TOTS course because every time we think the slides are ready, boom, a new study is dropped. And. I have to thank um, my network of professionals, um, surgeons, IBCLCs, um, the body workers, the OTs, the PTs, and especially Linda D'Onofrio of the Oral Myofunctional Study Group on Facebook. Um, for that, there's you know about seven thousand people in that Facebook group um, that are dropping the research on almost a daily basis. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've just extended the TOTS reference list. It's now up to 14 pages on the Talk Tools website. Um, and we're, yes, we're seeing research come out of otolaryngology. We're seeing that out of dentistry, oral surgery, speech pathology, um, even, you know, physical therapists are really starting to take an interest um, in TOTS care. There's um, some PTs here in New Jersey that are really focusing their practice on the breastfeeding infant mm -hmm. and working on fragile restrictions throughout the body. Um, but, you know, what's, what's great about this is the more research that comes out, like a speech pathologist such as myself um, or Autumn Henning, who also teaches um, a TOTS course, um, and she's been doing so, I believe, for about the past three years. Um, you know, we're getting involved now with some of the research and speaking at laser dentistry conferences and the International Consortium of tongue-tie um, professionals and, um, you know, that's really lending to that TOTS team approach where now even the physicians are starting to refer to the actual phrenectomies like Dr. Zaghi does the functional frenuplasty mm -hmm. because he's doing this surgery um, with adults who are awake under a local anesthetic, and he's actually checking function and movement throughout the procedure. Oh, wow. Um, and he's doing research and just did a study in 2019 with a very comprehensive team, speech, RDH, um, other physicians, and they looked at the combination of frenuplasty with myofunctional therapy um, and came out with some really positive results. And Richard Baxter, DMD, who wrote the book Tongue Tied, um, he's doing research as well. And I've been teaming up with him on a project. So we're all really getting together um, for the well-being of the patients. And it's great. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And, you know, just from the sounds of it, again, looking at uh, Linda D'Onofrio's Linda uh, Facebook uh, page, it, and, and from what you said, it does sound like right now there's still a minority of providers across disciplines that have a specialty, let alone a good awareness of TOTS to begin with. One thing right. I see constantly on her, on her page are people looking for referrals. Do you know anybody in Kansas City? Do you know anybody in this country? And yes. um, it just speaks to the fact that there needs to be a lot more education, a lot more outreach in this thing. Um, right. So I, I, I think it sounds like TOTS is still sort of in its infancy in that sense. I know people, I, I know in your book, you've talked about, um, you know, I think people are still learning. I know there's the two major surgical procedures. One is the laser, one is the uh, scalpel, I guess. Or scissor, or, yeah. Or scissor, yeah. And so I know people, I, I'm sure research is going to go on for years as to which procedure is better. And I know it probably a case by case depends. Yes, um, it, it definitely does. And it's really the <clears throat> skill of the provider mm -hmm. more so than the tool. Although I did um, a laser course with the American Laser Study Club, um, which promotes the light scalpel. And it was very interesting to learn the difference between a water laser versus a light scalpel versus a diode laser and how it actually affects the tissue, which affects healing. Sure, um, yeah. And, you know, really, we're like studying course nerds, a lot of us <laughs> who are certified oral facial myologists, um, because there's a lot of airway courses and laser courses and tongue-tie courses and uh, breathing courses, and we all kind of follow each other around in a circle per se. Yeah. Um, and the more you know, the more you're just dying of thirst to know more. More and more, yeah. Because it's all connected. And I really think that ASHA creating this oral facial myofunctional disorders practice portal, um, which I was indirectly involved with, Jeff, because – Mary Billings, who's a certified oral facial myologist and a teacher for the IAOM um, and past president of the organization, she was called in as a subject matter expert, and she decided to put together a team which consisted of myself, Christy Gatto, who's the author of Understanding the Oral Facial Complex, Linda D'Onofrio, who needs no introduction, mm -hmm. and Nicole Archambault who is highly published in the ASHA leader. She was just in it this month talking about, you know, the risks of choking with um, dysphagia and mastication. And she's done a lot of airway articles for ASHA, bringing our unique areas of expertise. And we wrote this huge document, which Mary submitted as her um, submission toward the portal. And between the five of us, we came up with a 43-page um, evidence-based list. It is available through the Oral Motor Institute, through the IAOM, through Talk Tools. Mm -hmm. um, so when we talk about oral motor and there being no evidence, there is so much evidence from all over the world. It might not be you know, being produced in ASHA journals, but it's certainly being produced in the International Journal of Oral Facial Myology in ENT, in dentistry, in orthodontics. Um, so it's really incredible how much research is actually out there. 
And I don't know if you're aware, Jeff, but ASHA really does recognize the importance of this because they have now added it to the 2020 curriculum of anyone matriculating from a graduate program in speech pathology. Oh, I didn't know so that. The universities are really going to have to do their due diligence because it's not going to be enough anymore to skim over cleft palate or maybe mention a tongue thrust. They're really going to need subject matter experts um, to be doing, you know, clinical forums. They're going to need textbooks. Um, and with this ASHA portal, it wasn't only Mary, but quite a few subject matter experts. And we were happy to see that some of our contributions were included, um, especially um, I was very excited to see what I submitted on oral placement disorders being associated with um, orofacial myofunctional disorders. And that's what TOTS falls under. You know, it falls under um, pediatric dysphagia. It falls under orofacial myofunctional disorder. And just recently, um, there was even a study that was published showing a correlation. It was just a case study, um, but a correlation with pharyngeal dysphagia. So it's really just pouring in and there's really no ignoring it anymore or you know, um, throwing out there that, you know, non-speech oral motor exercise and, and there's no place for it in our field. I mean, like yeah. I said, I can't even keep up with, and I'm looking um, for that reference for you um, from that recent study um, in terms of the the pharyngeal phase. And it's... it's <laughs> oh, we can, we can include that. I can put that at the end. Yeah, yeah I'll definitely put that in the links. But, you know, you mentioned you, one of the things in your book that I found so interesting is, you know, the common the common thinking, at least when I was a grad student, when we talked about ankle glossia, the term that we used yeah. back then, you know, I, I, I thought in terms of just one spot, obviously tongue tied. Right. Right. And you thought in terms of at least I thought in terms of just impact on speech sound production. And then, boom, your book comes out. And when you as you've been talking about this, we're talking not just about. Um, speech. We're talking about swallowing. We're talking about. You even mentioned in your book, uh, picky eaters, yes. um, as being one. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, Lori and I like to talk about the red flags of structural um, component of tots and the red flags of the functional component of tots. And you know, some of the red flags, you know, the easy ones we learned in school, like a heart-shaped tongue tip. But um, tongue, lip, and buckle ties often cause things like inversion of the central incisors, um, crowding of the teeth, blanching of the tissue, um, dental malocclusions, um, atypical tongue cupping, open mouth posture. Um, there's even a lot of talk about um, changes to the tonsils and adenoids and, and the cycle of tots causing mouth breathing. But in terms of functional sim symptoms, <coughs> this really goes back to um, Lori's work um, in teaching her class for over 30 years, a sensory motor approach to feeding, and Lori and I coming together and writing that text, which we published in 2013. When you look at anything, that interrupts the sensory motor system early in life, 
those sensory and motor systems are a feedback loop, right? Mm -hmm. So if something is interfering with the patient's ability to safely handle a food, um, this could very easily result in an aversion to certain textures or foods. And what we see in TOTS very early on in life is, um, you know, breastfeeding, there can be maternal pain, and that would be a red, red flag for TOTS and getting that taken care of. But that doesn't always happen, Jeff. And sometimes um, because the nipple can conform to the infant's mouth, unlike the way a bottle teat can, mm -hmm. um, parents start to see a breakdown when, you know, mom needs to go back to work and the breast milk has to go in the bottle, all of a sudden, you know, they bought 30 bottles and baby can't feed from the bottle. Or maybe they did okay with the bottle and they're introducing purees and baby's gagging or throwing up. The same can happen with solids. Mm. Um, and I'm seeing kids that are toddlers in school age that have been mis misdiagnosed with avoidant restricted food disorder or behavioral feeding disorders. And they're coming in um, with very obvious signs of tethered oral tissue, and they're very picky eaters. And you look at their range of motion, are they, you know, are they able to take that bolus and move it to the chewing surface and then form a bolus um, to get ready to collect it to swallow? Mm -hmm. And they're not. Um, they're missing skills that they should have had before, you know, 18 months, 24 months, 36 months. So when that oral motor developmental sequence is broken down by a structural anomaly, we can really see signs of oral and pharyngeal stage um, dysphagia, and it's going misdiagnosed as a behavioral problem or a, you know, a picky eating problem. And Melanie Potick actually wrote about this in the ASHA leader um, as well. And it took some heat. Asha took some heat for publishing it. And <laughs> you and I had talked about that um, when I wrote my case for Asha, consider all levels of evidence based when we talk about um, right. oral motor dysfunction. So um, that was, you know, related to TOTS as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, getting to that whole controversy thing, has that cooled down at all? Or is there still... You know, there's still several groups on Facebook um, that like to continue talking about there's no evidence for non-speech oral motor exercises. And mm -hmm. I just gave two webinars this um, past week, Jeff. And one of the things, one of my slides was picture of apples and oranges. And, you know, the problem still is, and I think Asha needs to really help with this, you know, non-speech oral motor exercises and phonetic placement slash oral placement are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. So when the naysayers keep talking about non-speech oral motor exercises, I just keep shooting back that you're not talking about what we're doing. Mm -hmm. And we thought it was kind of laid to rest until the leader published an article um, a, a, a several months ago. Um, and, oh, and the I July leader. Editorial, and many did. And it was talking about pseudoscience. Yes. And they brought Dr. Loff in. 
And, you know, they, they had to bring up non-speech oral motor exercises in relation to pseudoscience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I wrote a huge letter to ASHA, which they asked me to then cut down so they could publish it. <laughs> yeah. And someone else wrote in, you know, this rebuttal. And um, I addressed it publicly on the Oral Motor Institute. And um, I can tell you that over 10,000 people have re- you know have read and or shared that rebuttal mm. um so more and more people um and professionals are willing um to listen to what we have to say about this and and i do think that there is a deeper understanding of um what the variation is before you know between this concept of um, non-speech oral motor exercises versus what we're talking about here. And, you know, specifically about TOTS, I mean, if you had a string that was holding your two fingers together and you couldn't write, uh, I mean, you would certainly take care of it. Um, sure. And I think two things uh, that have recently happened that are really going to put this to rest Um one is that Char Beauchart did an amazing um, podcast herself in which she, um, paragraph by paragraph, goes through um, Dr. Loft's literature review. And basically, she pulled the um, actual research studies that he quoted, and he somehow conveniently kind of extracted little parts of it and not the main points. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little bit of a misrepresentation, perhaps, or a misunderstanding of the research. And Pam Marshalla, before she passed away, um, completed her um, book on motor speech um, and oral motor disorders, and I called it the Holy Grail. <laughs> Wasn't um, that just published oral, this fall? Oral dysfunction. I mean, it is yeah. incredible. And she's, you know, um, dating back to when we were called um, elo- uh, elocutionists. <laughs> I'm an evidence-based elocutionist. I'm an yeah. EE instead of a CCC. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, Jeff, the, the, the main points that I brought out in my, um, you know, public rebuttal through the Oral Motor Institute is that, one, genetic and oral placement techniques for muscle, motor, structural, neurological, um, speech depth, sound disorders um, are not NOMCs, um, oral motor and neuromuscular re-education for the oral phase of feeding and structural um, anomalies is not an, uh, you know, a non-speech oral motor exercise, and oral facial myofunctional therapy for disorders of the oral facial complex, which can include airway obstructions, tongue thrust, noxious oral habits like thumb sucking, tots, mm-hmm. speech sounds impacted by tongue position, poor oral resting postures. None of these things um, fall under that definition, you know, of yeah. tongue and cheek puffing and <laughs> you know. It. And so, I really wish that Asha would stop using that term as an umbrella term to include 
all firm forms of oral motor placement and myofunctional intervention. Yeah, so I've been I've been actually listening to Sharbo uh, Shart's uh, series, and for anyone who, who hasn't heard it yet, um, I'm sure by the time I release this podcast, she'll have gone through. I think it's a five part series. Yes, and I think she's released. So maybe she's on four now. Um, it's it's a very interesting. I mean, no matter where you guys are on the on the uh, on this uh, spectrum, whatever you believe, I think it's everybody should listen to it. Um, you can even earn CEUs for this if you sign up through Speech Therapy PD, by the way. I have no affiliation yes. with them, but I'm just letting you all know you can get CEUs for this. Um, so but I, I found it to be very fascinating. Um, and, and, I, and I think that really at the end of the day, I mean, there's so many things you can say about Shar's. Uh, I mean, and she's done her, I mean, she's done a ton of work on this. <laughs> you can see in her handouts. Yeah. But I, I think that one thing that I would say is that there, I think there definitely is a, a very much an oversimplification of what oral placement therapy is. Um, yes. I, you know, I've just for listeners, I've really jumped into this wholeheartedly in the last uh, two, <laughs> two, three years. I've taken, you know, none of the talk tools. I've taken two of the courses, the, um, uh, Sarah Rosemont Johnson, her first one. And, you know, I have to say, she, she said something that I thought was very interesting. And I think that Shar Boshar brought it up in her podcast series that w they both, I think, feel that one of the watershed moments, I think, where the tide is changing was that 2015 paper by Kent. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. And that's in my, I cite that in my rebuttal through the oral motor institute um yeah and you know he's kind of talking about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. um yes. and i will always go back jeff to saying this is now this is my opinion okay mm -hmm. um and because i represent a lot of different organizations i want to make it clear that it's my opinion i feel that um and i touched upon this um in my um, 2016 presentation at ASHA Connect, where I talk about a modern Van Riper approach, you know, seemingly when we use tools that shouldn't go in the mouth, and we're talking about TOTS tonight, and this is important even with TOTS because these patients are going to need pre and post-op care, and I sh I'm sure you want to hear about that. Yeah, that's what um, I want to talk about next. Yeah, go ahead. But oral placement is part of that, okay, for those um, children and adults who are speaking and have associated artic problems. But when we were putting feathers and pipe cleaners in people's mouths, which really wasn't safe, right? Mm -hmm. We know so much, you know, we're so much more conscious of, disease control and safe materials and PBA free and, mm -hmm. you know, all of this environmental stuff. But seemingly when innovative therapists started to develop tools um, that made all of our jobs easier, um, this is when this movement came that it wasn't evidence-based. And you and I talked about the last time that not everything we do clinically has a large um, case sample study. Like, do we have any evidence that using a mirror for placement cues works or yeah, exactly. that candy um, at the end of a therapy session will motivate a child more like, a, you know, and it, it's, you know, we clinical from day to day is a trial and error and we stick with things that work. And one of the things you said to me has always stuck with me, like, that you know, I've been around a really long time and I always have a full caseload and I must be doing something right. 
and it's not just me. I mean, when we look at now the Oral Motor Institute is growing and growing and the Oral Facial Myofunctional Study Group and the IAOM and um, there's been a big surge in therapists who are becoming certified oral facial myologists mm -hmm. and quite frankly, Jeff, as speech pathologists, there's a lot of people that want to do what we're doing. The lactation consultants want to be involved with TOTS, the OTs, the PTs, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, so... Um, you know, we have to be very careful and advocate for our fields because what I told the audience at ASHA when we spoke on TOTS last year, TOTS a hot topic, um, and that's available at the Talk Tools website, the handout and the references. If we don't advocate for ourselves as speech pathologists, other professions are going to take this over because the evidence is there. It's growing in numbers by the day. Um, and we're going to see, because of TOTS and the awareness of myofunctional therapy, we are going to see a surge in our roles in sleep disorder breathing, in airway dysfunction and respiration. I mean, it's pouring in. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of catch up. Yeah, there's a lot of catch up we all have to do. And I certainly, I mean, if I had a case come to me and someone said, you know, can you analyze? I mean, I have your... I have the book that you uh, that you, wrote, you and Lori wrote. I don't feel at all. I mean, I'm the first person to be like, I'm reaching out, help me, somebody in the Chicago area, because <laughs> I I I mean, I think <laughs> the one thing I can say about myself is that I know what I don't know, <laughs> for the most part. So I, you know, I'm I'm learning as I go along, and I I think and our believe profession. Me, Jeff, once you see it, you won't be able to unsee it. That's yeah. the thing. So. You know, you'll be on a, a train, a plane, an automobile, having dinner um, at or, at, you know, at a park and you'll be looking at um, the face and the oral complex completely differently. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I have to thank Shar because she was um, the first teacher that got me really interested um, in this work and, and talked about tongue tie as well as Sarah. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're, you know, if you are taking a deep dive into oral motor and feeding oral facial myology, oral placement, you can't ignore a tongue tie. Um, and uh, what I'm seeing, I once made a meme on my, you know, private practice group in social media of a tongue tie. And the words that I know what this is, it's apraxia, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to be doing a two part webinar on this um, in the winter and spring in terms of differential diagnosis of a you know motor execution muscle base and structural and how they can overlap and you know every single patient or student that gets an assessment by a speech pathologist should have a thorough structural assessment and rule out structural anomalies and it's just not happening it's not detailed enough yeah yeah, it's interesting that you say that because diagnosed with motor execution disorders. And yeah. I was happy to hear that Carrie Ebert, um, who spoke at Kasana this year, um, actually mentioned in her seminar, um, uh, she talked about our book and how you really have to do a thorough assessment um, of the mm. structure before you're jumping to an apraxia diagnosis, because you can't really make that diagnosis if, if um, a patient doesn't have or a student doesn't have full range of motion. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, I have to say that's that's the number one thing that I you know I, I took one of like one or two of Linda D'Onofrio's classes on speech therapy PD. Yes. And I would say that if there, the one thing that stuck with me more than anything else, and um, it is is that the point you just made that her thing is that structure comes before anything else. If I see something that's doesn't look right, that's where you begin. Yes. You know, not with the not with the speech or the feeding, because obviously that has to be taken care of. Yeah. Um, so yeah. and I'm hoping I'm not uh, misreading or. <laughs> no, what what Linda um, is really strong in her teachings and I've taken her courses as well. I've actually gone to her live presentation and I speak to Linda almost every day um, via, you know, email, messenger, text. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, what. Oral facial myology is really about is looking at um, the structure, function, connection throughout the lifespan. And one thing I'm really passionate about, Jeff, is the you know confusion between feeding and oral facial myofunctional therapy. Um, and because this uh, this topic is really boomed, unfortunately, we're getting a lot of um, professionals that really shouldn't be touching this, touching it. Mm. Um, and what I mean by this is that historically, you know, oral facial myology has been the union of dentistry and speech pathology. Um, the IAOM is the only um, nonprofit organization with a certifying board um, who, you know, requires a very stringent certification process and CEs thereafter to maintain that certification. Mm -hmm. There's coursework, there's a written test, there's a query. There's an on-site examination. It's very intense, even for a person like me who's been doing this for 25 years. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, it historically, I mean, they used to talk about doing myofunctional therapy with school-age children. When I first started learning about it, it was seven, eight, and up. And that's how I taught my OMT class. But as the years have passed, um, we're really now talking about, you know, once the toddler years are over, around the age of four, is when oral facial myofunctional therapy can begin. And the big difference, Jeff, is that no one's saying that babies can't have the early signs of an oral facial myofunctional disorder. They certainly can. If a baby is born with tongue tie, mm -hmm. they have an OMD. If they're born with a diagnosis of Down syndrome and they have low tone and a tongue thrust and feeding issues um, and you know, a double ridged palate and a high vaulted palate. These are signs and symptoms of OMD. But we're not going to take a baby and say, hey, hold your tongue to the spot and practice swallowing. Yeah, right. We're going to implement pre-feeding, oral motor, and feeding therapy to address these needs. Mm -hmm. And then later on in older children, um, we're going to be um, doing the more volitional movements. And what concerns me is that, um, you know, there is a movement for doing myofunctional therapy with babies and infants and, and toddlers. And to me, it's kind of a rebranding of a therapy that's been around for a very long time by the people who founded it. Diane Barr, Sarah Rosenfeld Johnson, mm. Pam Marshall, um, you know, uh, Sharp Beauchart, um, you know, just all of these, Morris and Klein, all these wonderful 
infant feeding specialist, Catherine Watson-Jennings, who's a world-renowned IBCLC, and we touch a lot on this in our course on TOTS because we want to be very clear. We do a multidisciplinary class. We work with PCs, OTs, RDHs, IBCLCs, speech pathologists, dentists, orthodontists. I've had gastroenterologists, pediatricians um, from feeding clinics in, in my courses. And we say, look, we treat this across the lifespan, but the team is going to look very different at different ages. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's no such thing as an oral facial myofunctional therapist. I'm seeing lactation consultants calling themselves oral facial myofunctional therapists. Oral facial myofunctional therapy is a treatment modality that falls under the scope of practice of a speech pathologist and a registered dental hygienist. Interesting distinction. I I hadn't thought about that. And feeding therapy um, also falls under occupational therapy. Wounds management is the roles of OTs and PTs. So we all have our place on a TOTS team, um, but there's definitely the struggle for who wants to be the leader. Um, Mm. And, you know, that that leads us into pre and post-op therapy, Jeff, because, um, you know, the pre-op is just as important as the post-op. And depending on the signs and symptoms of the patient, the makeup of the team is going to vary. Depending on the presenting uh, issues. Right. Yeah. feeding issue, you better have an IBCLC on that team. Right. But if there's a speech issue, you better have a speech pathologist on that issue. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's fragile restriction throughout the body, you know, the, we know a lot now um, through studies out of Brazil and also um, by Dr. Mills um, and uh, her team in looking at um, the composition of a frenulum, we now know that it's collagen, and there it's also compromised by fascia, and it's a multidimensional um, tissue. It's not just one type of tissue, mm-hmm. and that's why we know that we can't stretch it. You know, we used to talk at Talk Tools about stretching it. Well, we weren't exactly wrong. What we were seeing clinically is release of the fascial restrictions that are associated with TOTS. So Lori and I talk about, you know, the three C's of pre-op treatment, and that's one, the client um, getting them acclimated. We know we have kids with autism or um, patients with oral aversion. We want to get them acclimated, and we want to get the best range of motion that we can possibly get, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, by working on the fascia. The second C is the caregiver. We want to train them. What is easier to do? Training a parent in a relaxed environment to do the post-op care or trying to do this when um, the patient just had surgery and every, you know, the uh, patient has some mild pain or soreness and everybody's a nervous wreck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Want to train them. And it's also for the clinician to establish the baselines because, you know, I could do a 90-minute eval, but I don't know everything about that patient or what's going to work best for that patient clinically. I need some data. Mm-hmm. So um, one of the things that I preach constantly in social media, in the books, 
in the numerous posters that I do at ASHA, at the IAOM, in blogs, in the podcasts is don't rush to the surgeon. Functional assessment first, begin therapy, get the surgical consult, and when the patient is ready for release, then you do the release and you start the post-op care. Very, very important. So it sounds like there's a lot of diagnostic therapy going on. You're seeing the clients. You have an idea of what's going on. You're doing some work with them. Um, I, I know you talk about different exercises that you would have uh, clients do prior to a release. Um, right. And then, of course, there's all that. There's the post-op care. There's also all the, uh, you know, di- the different protocols that you've developed. Um, so pre and post op is yeah. the same. What we're going to do post op, we want to start pre op. So we want to mm-hmm. start doing myofascial release, um, doing um, some oral sensory tactile stimulation of, um, you know, getting the lip, for example, um, down and forward for spoon feeding. So. Our philosophy is a task analysis of the pre-feeding skills or the oral placement skills that are needed for feeding and speech. Mm. And we've developed through a combination of a sensory motor approach to feeding, myofascial, Lori's NDT background, Mm -hmm. um, some of the speech tools that we're already using for oral placement, and new um, protocols that we develop like the V stretch with the Liper tool, for example. We're implementing them pre-op, but they're based on what are our goals in terms of functional need. Are there issues with lip closure, with maintaining proper oral rest posture? Is tongue retraction the issue? Are they not lateralizing a bolus? Can they not retract the tongue and get good elongation in the lateral margins of the tongue to support tongue tip placement for alveolar sounds. We really do that assessment. And and Jeff, you can take a look at our assessment protocols under resources on the Talk Tools page. We offer these for free for both children and adults um, to look at everything we're assessing um, in these populations from, I'll, I'll link to that. Um, you know, the, the craniofacial structure, the dentition, hard tissue, soft tissue, mm-hmm. and functional skills um, for pre-feeding, feeding, and speech. And that's what, you know, designs a program plan or a treatment protocol um, for pre and post-op. Me in particular, Jeff, as you know, I work with a lot of um, complex cases and special needs populations. Yeah. So I can assure you that my patients with autism are not going to get a release um, and just walk into my office and let me do, you know, 45 minutes of post-op neuromuscular (laughs) re-education. Sure. Um, And, you know, the thing is, is that we really don't have a good baseline. Like, how do we know if there's any improvement or how to tweak the program if we haven't gotten a good snapshot of the patient? Right. Um, so, uh, you know, we really feel that um, based on our clinical data and, and what other experts in the TOTS um, arena are seeing is that with whether it be the pre-feeding, the oral placement, the myofunctional therapy or combination thereof, 
we're getting better post-op results. Mm -hmm. uh, even Dr. Yan and Dr. Siegel, who are my two main phrenectomy providers, um, one in ENT and one um, an oral um, surgeon, respectively, is that they're seeing better um, surgical outcomes because they can get um, a better range of motion and really see um, what they need to release. And as Dr. Yan says, you don't want to release too much, but you don't want to release too little. Uh, That's a good point. Yeah, you know, the other, so I did want to ask you before I let you go tonight, you, I, I think it's in your book as well. Uh, you've mentioned that one of the, I don't want to call it a danger, but one of the concerns that you might have is after releasing the tissue regrowing, scar tissue forming yet another tethered oral tissue. Uh, is, am I getting that right? Um, say that again, Jeff. So I, if, I can't remember if it was your book or if it was somewhere else I read about the idea, uh, the, one of the risks of surgery. Uh, I don't know if this is laser or uh, traditional, but the idea that when you remove the uh, tethered oral tissue, when you're removing tissue, that the scar tissue itself can develop into yet yes. a new tethered oral tissue. So there's actually, Jeff, when we talk about um, surgery, um, we talk about two phases of treatment post-op. Um, the first phase is active wound management. And this is a little bit tricky because this is what's prescribed by the surgeon. And as speech pathologists, we don't have the term active wound management located anywhere in our scope of practice. Right. OTs and PTs do. Um, but neuromuscular re-education certainly falls in our scope. Mm -hmm. And they can look very similar, um, but the goals are a little different. Active wound management is to prevent scarring and reattachment. And um, I think that Autumn um, Henning does a really excellent job. I heard her speak at the IAOM, and she teaches a TOTS specialty training course. And she is very well versed in the intricacies of wound healing and why that occurs and how the tissue lays um, that diamond after surgery, the tissue lays on top of one another and it wants to reconnect in those first three weeks, you really have to make sure that you're keeping that, especially the laser wound open. Mm -hmm. Sutures is a little bit different because it's a different control of healing. And that's why for um, older patients, um, especially special needs patients, I like to have sutures because we're, you know, think of the child with autism that mouths a lot of objects or puts their fingers in their mouth or isn't going to tolerate the active wound management. Mm -hmm. We need um, a solution to that, right? Yeah. But if you look in my book, um, I had a case study um, that wrote their whole journal of their six-week um, six post-op experience and how they could feel the tightening and the fibers reconnecting and using coconut oil and stretching and reopening of the wound. Mm. Um, so that part of the post-op is really focused on not getting a scar, not getting reattachment. And then there's the functional piece, which is where um, Lori and I step in. Yeah. So, um, for example, when we talk about a V-stretch or a liper lift, 
our goal is incre increase the range of motion for lingual elevation for function, for swallowing and speech. But the same thing is done in act active wound management to keep the fascial restrictions released and avoid reattachment of the tissue. So many of the things we do from a neuromuscular point of view can also be of benefit when we talk about wound healing. You know, I'd be very interested in seeing, your book has a lot of great uh, photographs. Um, I, I would be interested in seeing video examples of some of these uh, movements and the active wound management. I'm just wondering if there's any resource online where one could see just little video snippets of, of those types of things. Well, we do a lot of that in our course. Um, mm -hmm. I can't think of in particular, in the orofacial myofunctional study group, we do see a lot of um, different case studies and sharing. That's a great resource. Um, there are quite a few groups on Facebook um, dedicated to TOTS. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I would look into that. There's a tongue tie statistics group. Um, there is wow, I had no idea there were so many uh, uh, groups for for tots. Yes, and all that. yes. There's quite a few. There's ITAP. There's ICAP. Um. There's um New York, New York, and New Jersey tongue tie group. Mm -hmm. There is um. I'm trying to get all the names. Yeah, I'll I'll try to dig uh, around for some of these names. I'll can I'll try to there's link to those as well. Myofunctional professionals. There's Tongue Tie MD. Mm -hmm. There's Dr. Gahari's website in group. Um. Oh. There, Linda D'Onofrio has a, another group, Oral Facial Complex General Articles. Mm -hmm. There's um Tongue Tie Tongue and Lip Tie Statistics. So there's quite a few out there um, that you'll see a lot of case studies and videos, but definitely in the course that Lori and I teach and, you know, we'll be on tour again for 2020. Um, I'll be in Raleigh in December and then um, we'll be, uh, I, Lori just went to Greece. I know we're going to be doing um, the, um, American Lasers Study Club convention, and I'm going to be going to Kentucky, which I've never been, and that's going to be exciting. Oh, cool! And that's always available on the Talk Tools website for sure. Yeah. And I'm also going to have a new webinar um coming up in January, which is a new product Lori and I are developing, which is a five-step screening tool for tots. That will be for speech, IBCLC, RDHs, um, pediatricians, oral surgeons, dentists, um, kind of a quick walkthrough. Do you see these red flags structurally? Do you see these red flags um, from a functional point of view? Well, we need to get this patient to a specialist. So even if you're not um, a, a TOTS expert, it'll give enough information to get that patient to the right professional. Cool. Very cool. We'll look out for that. Um, I've kept you on the phone now. We're on Skype now for over an hour. Okay. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to mention before we sign off? 
Um, no, I just direct everybody to um, the research on the Talk to a Page and through the Oral Motor Institute and check it often. Um, I am updating the TOTS reference list on a monthly basis. We were accepted to ASHA. We're going to be speaking on the um, SLP's role with tethered oral tissue. Nice. For, for both assessment and for um, therapy. Linda D'Onofrio is going to be doing her wonderful presentation of the research in oral facial myology, and she's going on a world tour and, you know, really talking about um, oral facial myofunctional disorders as the cause of dental malocclusion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we used to um, learn that oral resting posture was the only thing that could affect the dentition. But now we do know that it's tots and swallowing and speech and airway dysfunction. Um, and this is all interrelated. So yeah. um, IAOM is another great resource, um, as I said before. And you just have to really keep on top of it. And, you know, Jeff, I'm, I, I feel um, and I'm, you know, I really mean it when I say this, I think one of the greatest accomplishments in my career, and it'll always stick with me, um, is that you first interviewed me um, to try to get to the bottom of, you know, oral motor, and, and you were kind of a skeptic at the time, and it was <laughs> in the height of, you know, this is an evidence-based, and you really kept an open mind, and then having me back the second time, um, you decided to pursue this on your own, and I know you and I... Um, have been working together on a little bit of a, a mentorship here and yeah. looking at some case studies. And I'm very proud of what you've been doing. Um, and, it, you know, to impact one clinician such as yourself in this way um, helps dozens and dozens of patients and students. And, and that's what this is about. Yeah, um, exactly. So really about helping thank clients. You for your yeah. open mindedness and and you're willing um to see both sides of the story and and not just hear it but to listen to what we're talking about and do your own due diligence and that's what i encourage everyone to do um do, don't just believe it because you heard it in some you know trendy um facebook group on evidence base um just because someone says there's no evidence or that's not a good study doesn't mean that it's true. Yes, I, I totally agree. And I have to say that I, this is going to get me into trouble, but I'll say it anyway. I am all for evidence-based practice. I think we all are in the end. And we yeah. want to see the research. We want to see the best available studies. But we don't have all the answers today. And no, we don't, and we don't have enough researchers. That's another problem. Exactly. Um, so and I, then if you do your own research, you're criticized for kind of swaying the research. So my question is, how do we get people that aren't interested in this work to do the research? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, um, yeah. I, I agree, and, and I, it's sad. <laughs> and I'm happy to also say that the IAOM has now gotten its own um, IRB, so that means members um, can submit studies through the IAOM, through the IJOM. Um, and I'm, I'm tossing around a couple of case studies and literature reviews. Um, and I did some posters at the IAOM that drew um, attention um, of a couple of um, 
individuals who are more versed in research design than myself. And I'm hoping that they're looking at my um, ideas and the, you know, the literature that I've collected so we can move forward with, for example, the, the um, correlation of TOTS with LISP and the correlation of TOTS with um, self-limited diets and, and things that, you know, people are still saying, oh, there, you know, there is no correlation, there is no evidence when we really do have some nice emergent research. So yeah, yeah. Uh, just, nice. just keep your, uh, you know, continue to keep your eye on what we're doing and um, we're going to keep working really hard to get this message out there and keep perfecting um what we're teaching to our attendees and you're going to see some exciting changes with our course coming for 2020 that I think a lot of people will be very happy with. Awesome. Well, thank you as always for everything that you do. Thank you, Jeff. It was so nice to talk to you again. Okay. Thank you, Robin Merkel Walsh for being a guest on the show for a second time. Um, Oh boy. I got lots of housekeeping here. Let's start with the uh, basic stuff. Um, go ahead and um, feel free to check out the links uh, in your podcast player, whatever you choose to listen to your podcast through. There should be the links. I, I'm not going to get everything. Uh, there's just too many things to link to, but I've tried to make a collection of the things that I thought was most important to that you guys should be aware of. But let me know if there's something else that you want to see on there on the show notes that I have not included. Um, second, oh, many of you probably are wondering about the, uh, we talked at the end about, um, my delving more into the world of oral motor, oral placement. And for those of you who haven't really listened to the prior episodes that I've, uh, had on this topic or the blog posts, um, yes, I've, I've been trying to really learn about oral placement therapy. Um, here's where I am in 2020 in January. Um, I do think I've been missing out on something big here. And uh, I'm trying to play catch up the best I can, uh, serve my clients the best I could. And to be quite honest, you know, Robin's been very gracious about letting me uh, email her with questions, um, sending her clips now and then to a couple of my private clients. And it's been quite a learning process. And to be quite honest, if I, if I could really do things the right way, what I would honestly do is literally take a sabbatical. I really wish I, I could just go back to school. And uh, if I did this right... I would take a year off my practice, my school, I'd put it all on hold and just literally go travel and, and watch, watch the masters at their game and see what it is that they're doing. Because the thing, the, the, the gap that I need to bridge is really, again, thinking like a clinician and no matter what we do, we have to think like a clinician. It can't just be about applying uh, tools and exercises randomly. We have to know the why we have to know what, what, what it is that we're seeing. And uh, I think I've made some gains there, but I'm nowhere near uh, the level I think I need to be to help my clients the most. So, yeah, that's where I am in January 2020. I'm, I'm trying to learn more of this stuff, and uh, I'm thankful to people like Robin and Linda D'Onofrio for the work that they're doing. And just really, Sharbo uh, Shard, I have to give her a shout-out for that excellent podcast series. Um, from here, I just I just need to keep learning. That's all I can say about that. Um Okay, so a couple other things. Um, if you haven't mentioned this in a while, but if you haven't done so, it would really help me out a lot if you can give an honest review for this podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you listen to podcasts. It just helps other people find the podcast. That's, at least that's what I'm told. And finally, you'll see if you visit my website ever, 
uh, conversationsinspeech.com, you'll see that there's a complete redesign of the, um, of the website. I had to change uh, providers, uh, hosting providers, and so I cut out a lot of the um, old headshots and old uh, podcast links. You can no longer listen to the podcast through the uh, website, but really, who does that anyway? So you'll see that that's gone, but I've left up the what I thought are the essential blog posts that I have there, and of course, the most recent um, podcast episodes, just some headshots of those. And again, you can always find all the other, all the old um, podcast links through your player or wherever you listen to podcasts. Finally, if you wish to get a hold of me for any reason, Jeff at conversationsinspeech.com. Happy to start a dialogue with you. Just keep it civil. That's all I ask. All right. Thank you all so much for listening, and I will see you next time.